Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Welcome, listeners. You are in luck. Today, we have a special guest, uh, one of Kosha's colleagues, Kevin Shelton. Kevin Shelton Jr. Jr., I'm sorry. Yes, Kevin Shelton Jr., who is going to talk to us about his experience, what Black excellence means to him, uh, and, and his journey. It's so amazing. It doesn't quite fit with this this month or this season's um, demographic, right? Like it, it, he's not bucking gender norms, but uh, it really is just it, timely for Black History Month. But something we talk about a lot is, you know, his history doesn't fit in a month. That it goes beyond what we're used to in in the world. Saying, okay, February first to February twenty eighth, we will celebrate Black. Black history and, you know, Black excellence, but uh, March 1st, we're moving on. So um, it was so awesome to get to know him on this side. Um, I, he speaks so eloquently and articulately about, about his experience. And uh, I just, he's a joy. He was a joy. I hope he comes back. I really do. Me too. I think one thing that's also relevant, you're right, Kosha, he's not bucking gender norms but so much about what it means to be a person in a space that's dominated by another culture that's set by a male culture, a female culture, is um, what it's like to be an outsider. And I think that is one thing you, our listeners will hear when they listen to Kevin, is what it's like to be you know, a black man who works in a primarily white dominant corporate culture um, and what he is doing um, through his work and through your work, you know, your group's work together on the diversity, equity, inclusion efforts to bring more people in and to shift to that because that inclusion piece, like you'll hear, the inclusion piece is actually the most important thing. How do you get to inclusion? And that's a really, that's a relevant question, whether you're talking about gender or race or sexuality or nationality or any of those things. He also mentioned something similar, which is, you know, the work's not over. Once you have that panel discussion or that conference call about race or, you know, you put together a DEI council, the work's not over. It's just beginning. And, you know, Kevin, um, he's doing the work. He's doing it. He's working it. He's living it. It was great. I'm so um, grateful that he joined us. I'm grateful to you, Kosha, for facilitating this connection. It was amazing conversation. Uh, I love you. 
Chelsea and too. our listeners, yeah. but I lo- I'm looking at you and I love you. Uh, I'm having such a great time doing this with you and I'm just happy. We keep getting these amazing guests. Yeah. All right. Enjoy Kevin Shelton Jr. He is speaking. My name is Kevin Shelton Jr. I am a black man. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a brother. I am a son. And I am speaking. Hi, Kevin. Welcome. Hey, hey, ladies. How y'all doing? I appreciate y'all. I'm excited. Well, we'll see if he appreciates us afterwards. <laughs> and as we was talking before, I don't want y'all to do this behind my back, but I did say y'all. I do have that that Oklahoma twang to my voice. So just no understand words. that. And I know this. Okay. Oh, you know this about yourself. <laughs> y'all is the best word ever. <laughs> it is. It's Facts. truly the all, y'all and all y'all. It's like the best two words in the whole world. Why would you say y'all versus all y'all? All y'all is like everybody. Emphasis. Emphasis. <laughs> yeah. All y'all get the hell out of my house. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. There's a whole like finger thing, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, it has that vibe where it's like, y'all. Yeah. I love oh. it. So, so you are from Oklahoma. <laughs> now we're going to go off on this discussion. Tangent. No, from Oklahoma. Where were you born and raised there? Uh, born and raised Oklahoma city. Um, I live here for the majority of my life. Went to um, high school here. Uh, we even went to a small, uh, now D2 college here. Played a little basketball there. Got my first job in sales out, straight out of college for an insurance company. And then it eventually got into uh, biotech, a pharmaceutical uh, industry. And I tra- traveled from um, Oklahoma, excuse me, actually Edmond, Oklahoma, which is a suburb of Oklahoma City. Um, we moved to Owasso, Oklahoma, just outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then we moved to Andover, Kansas, uh, which is just outside of Wichita, Kansas, before we returned back here to Oklahoma City uh, last year, where we actually moved back to Edmond. Uh, so somewhat well-traveled, but we made it, uh, we, we wanted to maintain family, connection to culture, connection, connection to ourselves. And so even though we had opportunities to move outside of the United States or to the some East Coast, West Coast, we always want to stay within uh, um, close proximity of our families, me and the wives. You and your wife's families are in that area still? Yeah, so I'm married to a Hispanic American. Uh, I'm, my, my family's here in Oklahoma City. Her, her town is Hennessy, Oklahoma. All they have is like a two gas stations, a Sonic, and a chicken joint. You know what I mean? So, oh, Shailshi and I grew up in a central Illinois town. We didn't have a Sonic. I don't even think we had oh, a wow. Walgreens at the time. No, no, we were. It was still. I mean, when we lived there, it was still like family-owned pharmacy and family-owned restaurants and things like that. Yeah. You know, you talk. I, I was listening to one of your your. Um, one of your uh, shows um, and talking about the story of him. It was Dr. Um, Dr. Javier Gomez. Yeah. Gomez. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the story of immigration and uh, I'm inspired. And uh, a lot of her, her parents, you know, are, are that typical Mexican and American now story, right? They found a way to get to a better life here and they built it and they made it happen. And they, they're living that quote unquote, uh, American middle-class Mexican-American dream. They found their community in Hennessy. So 
How did you meet? How did the two of you meet? She worked at a bank with uh, my best friend, best man at my wedding. Uh, shout out uh, GC. Um, and um, um, I got out of a, of a toxic relationship, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, this young, dumb and you know, this young, dumb and full, of, you know, full of cum, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Those relationships when you're in your twenties, when you yeah. think like drama, it means that yeah. like, like it's really like it's working because it's all dramatic and like people are crying and they get back together and it's like, oh, this is what love's supposed to be like. Instead of being like, someone says they're going to be home at six and they're home at six. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, it was really, he, he uh, got out of that relationship and I was obviously like this, like second guessing and everything and uh, my boy called me he said man uh i think he wanted to save me from going back and uh <laughs> and oh god if she ever hears this that that's listen listen i appreciate our experiences if she hears it okay you are who you are partially because of those experiences yes right he, he said i got somebody for you uh, definitely, you know, beautiful girl, intelligent, sharp, all of that kind of stuff. And, and I truthfully, I said, okay. And we started texting or something. And I truthfully, I blew her off just because I knew that if I engaged that, it wouldn't like, I wouldn't be, my heart wouldn't be into it. It would be for the wrong reasons. Right. My boy kept stayed on me and we eventually had a first blind date, um, and we just hit it off. She was just such a sweetheart, such a breath of fresh air. And I really cling to the uh, cultural similarities where family first, the ultimate goal of I have children, take care of that unit. And then, you know, we can, you know, just take care of life from there. Oh, well, let me say this. Uh, how? So I say this, the first time I knew she was the one, I went on a, God, this is going to be bad. I went on a night of uh, clubbing and drinking, uh, vomited in the car. She came and got me, drove me home. I wake up the next morning, hung over. She's cleaning out the car, cleaning out the vomit. And I was like, okay, who does that? You know? And so then, then I committed to her almost from there, man. But um, that's a horrible story. But uh, you committed so hard, you puked. Yeah, right. I will pew first. <laughs> also, I I remember that feeling of being being face to face with what feels like the rest of your life. Like yes, you kind of know yeah. that that's there, and you're resistant to it. So you do stuff like that. I my my best friend likes to remind me every once in a while that I almost blew off the guy I married because I knew deep in my heart that if I went on a second date with him it would be the end of, you know, the end of dating. We were done. That I was going to end up married to that guy. And I did, but I remember he called me and I'm walking around Target with her and I just put the phone away. And she goes, who is that? And I said, oh, you know, it's that guy I went out with. She goes, you need to call him back. And so she like walked me to the front of the store and waited till I called him back. And then we finished shopping. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's one of those things where like you see it coming and you're like, how about if I don't look at it? <laughs> but let me say this, Shay Lucia, I'm going to try to say on point no, with that. That's perfect. That's perfect. You know, I'm in my 30s now. Once we start to divine, define what life or what happiness is for us, it feels so securing, right? To have someone is to wake up and say, this day's going to be hard, but at least I have someone to go it with. I feel like your friend, my friend, both knew we deserve better, right? 
what we're doing to ourselves, our own self-destructive behaviors, and also the women are uh, men that we were courting. Like you deserve better. You yeah. give out. You give out better. You deserve better. So yeah. anyway, that's my takeaway from that. I appreciate that, and you're right. She told me later. She's like, I saw that you were scared, and I wasn't going to let you get away with that. Right. Like if it's not going to work, it's not going to work because you decided it wasn't going to work, not because you chickened out. Right. So how long have you been married? Uh, eight years. Eight, uh, years. eight years last September. Well, I say that because you said you're in your 30s, so you definitely got married in your 20s at some point. I didn't get married till I was almost in my 30s. So I'm like, I have a lot of um, appreciation, admiration for people who kind of get their act together much younger than I did. We were 26 when we got married, me and Brian, and we've been married. It'll be 16 years in May. That's amazing. Which is crazy because now I'm 42. I just turned 40, 42 last month. And I'm like, what day last month? The 29th of January. You lie. Y'all so full oh, of totally on this did. freaking podcast. I promise she is 42. <laughs> You're an Aquarius? I'm an Aquarius. Yes. My birthday's January 29th, Kosha. Yours is not. Really? Hand on the. I swear. Hand on some wow. book. You wanted to say Bible. You <laughs> wanted to say Bible, but. Well, once again, I've heard some other podcasts, so <laughs> we're treading lightly here. We are not easily offended. No, nah, no, I could tell. Yeah, don't worry about offending. That I'll just cut that shit out. Anything offensive you say, <laughs> I'm just going to cut that shit out. Well, let me let me say this. Um, we, we're not going to brush by that we have the same birthday. We're going to celebrate the hell out of that. That is point. amazing. But um, I'll say this. I did not grow up in the church, you know, I, my mother worked multiple jobs to, to take care. My father was in, in our lives with my two sisters, but um, he was a, a separate household and, you know, going through those up and downs and those challenges. I did not find um, um, any connection to, to my God until I got to college uh, because I went to a Nazarene university. That's what I just kind of developed my spiritual journey, right? Fast forward to now, I do as identify as Christian. I do identify as spiritual, but it's changed mm-hmm. um, because um, as I've done research and learned more, you know, you think about how my ancestors came into Christianity during the slave period and the enslavers used that to as a power hold over my people, right? That is just factual. That's just what it was. Um, and so I had to come to terms to that. And so what does that mean for me? Can I continue to operate within this spiritual journey, right? And so, but at the end of the day, Christianity came from a African-based spiritual place. And so it's not about disowning or separating myself, but understanding what that means for me and my ancestry in today's time. Me and the wife are kind of in contention that sometimes because I'm not a big Bible guy. Mm-hmm. But I am a big do unto others guy, you know. So so anyway, um, um, you know, that's just a, a part of it. Um, I don't know how we got here, but that's, you know, that's part of my spiritual journey. So we were just talking about like being married a long time and Brian and I got married. We were 26. And at the time, I didn't you'd never think that you're too young. You don't you think, you know, everything. Right. And I look back and I was like. Oh my God, I was a baby when I got married. <laughs> but but culturally, educate me here, ladies. Culturally, uh, your parents are like, do y'all do y'all come from a place? Um, I know it's uh, it's India, right? I don't mm-hmm. remember yeah. the arranged marriages. Like they still in part of that culture. Don't y'all come from that history? Yeah, we do absolutely. Our parents did have an arranged marriage. Yeah, it's evolved. Yes, past right. the movies where it's not like you're going to get married to this person. It's more um, like selective speed dating 
right? Here's a pool of people that we have already pre-screened them. We know their family. We know their education. We blah, 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 blah. These are the people that we think would be an appropriate match for you. Now, please go ahead and meet them and see if you like them. And then if you hit it off with someone, then yeah, go ahead. But it's not like we've decided for you. My parents went through it with me. And they, so the person I was connected with, we weren't dating is hard to say, because we were like, kind of just like talking on the phone and stuff. Um, but went back to India and got married three days after he, oh, wow. uh, I'm not sure he got married, but his wedding invitations were out three days after he went back. And so after all that, my parents were like, you do it. <laughs> yeah. So they just were not interested in going through that anymore. It's a complicated people are born here. They come over here. It's a different mindset. You know, people have different approaches to it. I will generally say it tends to be easier for men to get married and arrange marriages because there's still a very patriarchal culture that operates. And so whether you're born in the States or whether you came over to the States at some point, or whether you're born in India, if you marry an Indian woman, you are going to get someone who expects to take care of you yeah. for the most part. If you're an Indian man and you marry a girl who was raised in the States, it's a, it's a totally different ballgame. Yeah. And it's very hard for that to work. It can work, obviously, like any sort of cross-cultural marriage but it's much harder. Yeah. We, we come from that background, didn't participate in it. Our parents, they've been married for 46 years. They love each other. They bicker, you know, they're, they're an old (laughs) married couple, right? They're an old grumpy married couple, but they're still together after 46 years and they were arranged. So it's not generations ago. Right. Well, yeah. and I would I would say kudos to your parents without knowing them because um, the ability to let go and realize that we are in the states and it's not about ex- embracing American culture, but at embracing the importance of giving their daughters their voice, right? Their ability to speak and acknowledge what's like you know what's best for yourself. So like that's not easy for uh, Indian parents, Hispanic parents, like. You don't think that my wife's parents had apprehension about for her marrying a black man from Oklahoma City? Like, I felt all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And we made it through, you know? And, uh, but uh, kudos to your parents in that way, for sure. They do listen to this. So they'll, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we've got enough bitch talking about them that they're going to be like, see, finally, someone said kudos. To someone us. appreciates us. <laughs> we need this Kevin guy in our lives. I was kind of concerned because when I said that, my, my last word, and the coach was like, hmm. <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I mean, and I agree, Kevin. It is true that my parents, you know, our parents were far more liberal than most Indian parents sure. were at the time, and maybe even still are. I don't know. But, you know, the Indians that came over in the 60s and 70s, post, you know, the Immigration Reform Act, we're all doctors and engineers. And those people push their kids to go into medicine and engineering. It's only now that we're seeing the hard kind of the world, right? The Indians who are, you know, comedians and actors and writers and in creative endeavors, because there's no money in creative endeavors, but our parents were really clear to us that like, you're the one that has to live your life. And if you take a career that you don't like, then you're the one that's going to be miserable, not me, right? Same thing with getting married. You're the one that has to be married to this person. If you do it because you think we want it, you are going to be miserable. And so they were very, very um, open-minded about that kind of thing. You know, you talk to 
Indian Smite, you know, in their 30, late 30s, early 40s, early 50s who grew up here, there was a clear expectation that you went into one of these professionalized fields. And I know people who are in medicine and in engineering and never wanted to do that, yeah. but felt like they had to because that's what their parents expected of them. Think about that experience from being your own uh, brown girls, brown family. One of the things we have to, I had to navigate, I'm navigating with my wife's family, is that Mexicans get over here, risk their lives to get here, to assimilate in this society, right? And their ultimate goal is big house, white picket fence, get the dog, have their business, you know, keep their head down and move forward, right? And, I, and I've experienced this from uh, Indian folks, uh, Mexican folks, even my own ancestors, like Africans, who look at African-Americans and say, how can you just be at the liquor store every day? Or how can, why aren't you doing anything? Why are you, what's wrong with you? And I think there's a, and I'm very into the psychology of systemic racism and things and, the, and that kind of thing, but how, how dare you, you know, how could you? We have to be willing to understand the context and that the residual effects, right? Wealth-wise, uh, psychologically, family-wise, the destruction of, of, of the African-American family. You know, it's not about, hey, you made it. Why couldn't that person? It's unfair shame. And so that is a conversation that needs to be had. And that's why, you know, we're talking about in the corporate setting, why is this important for somebody like myself or you ladies to speak up? Because it not only needs to be an education, but it needs to be a true, accurate story told. That's something that um, I'm passionate about. It's just not true, the narrative that's out there. No one wants to be in poverty. No one wants to be a gang banger or whatever the, the false narrative is. Everyone wants the best for themselves and their families. So if that is the case and those needs are not being met, why? And so we can un unveil that onion, then we can get somewhere. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that one of the key differences between Indian people or uh, Mexican immigrants or even African immigrants versus the African-American, Black American experience is those people wanted to come here. That was a choice. They're willing to take on the hardship to come live in the U.S. for any number of reasons. The Black American experience is not a choice. It's something that's being impressed on people. Like, I don't have a choice. I didn't choose this experience. I was born here in these circumstances. And, and this is what I'm living with. Right. I'm also really, really fascinated and like very appreciate unpacking systemic racism. Yeah, yeah. I would love to hear your definition and your experience with systemic racism, because what I think that people think it, about systemic racism is racist people in the system. Well, if you have a racist boss or, you know, the CEO of your company is racist, that's yeah. not truly what systemic racism is. Can you go into what that, what the definition is and maybe even parse that out a little bit for us? I do my best from my perspective, from my experience, from my understanding. So I perceive systemic racism as structures and policies in place that have been in place for a long period of time that were originally created 
and uh, implemented to prevent people of color, POCs, from regression. Okay. One of the age old examples uh, is redlining, right? 40s, 50s, 60s, where people of color could not purchase real estate in certain zip codes. And that was policy implemented by the banking system, right? And um, you think about today's, um, the, since, you know, especially since COVID happened, but the real estate's popping right now. I think it's 2021, 2020, but the African-American wealth is, let's say, say about uh, $17,000. White folks' average wealth is about, let's say, $117,000. So you have a $100,000 gap. That's not because nobody, they worked harder than anybody. That's because from back to in the cotton fields and plantations, that was handed down to their, their kin, handed down to their children's 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 children's. Right. And then when it got time to where you can actually purchase real estate, then they drew lines in the sand. Right. You can, but you can't come over here. And instead of saying you can, they built projects. Right. And now they created uh, neighborhoods that have projects and apartment housing, affordable, so-called affordable housing. But they didn't put the best schools there in those communities. They didn't put healthcare, the best hospitals in those communities. And so you just have this residual effect that leads us to we being behind and expected to pull ourselves up our bootstraps. I go to, for me, what we see often in current corporate America, a constant fight for um, affirmative action. And, uh, you know, if I represent 15% 15% of the population, why am I not 15% of your sales force, 15% of your executives, 15% of your manager, you know what I mean? But I'm still fighting for that. And the reason that is not because people who are hiring are particular, in particular racist themselves, but the system of racism is implemented, right? Those back room conversations of wanting to hire people that look like them, that they have similar likeness in appearance and, and thought, that is so much heavier than, you know what, Kevin's actually a sharp dude and has a great track record. Why don't we consider him? Th- those are just two examples, but you could do, I could do that all day. When, when we had, you know, Hillary was running for president and it was before she had um, chosen a running mate. So yeah. there were people who were like, oh, Hillary Elizabeth Warren would be amazing. Then you had people like, oh, no, no, we couldn't do that. The country's not ready for two women. The country's had two white dudes since the beginning of the country, right? What does that mean? It's because of those systemic layers that have been in place that you're so used to seeing two white guys on the ticket that anything other than that is too shocking. Yeah, I agree with you 100% culture. And I will even add to that the other systemic, systemic problematic structure is like the utilization of media, right? You think brown, you think Muslim, you think um, like Al Qaeda terrorists. Al Qaeda, right? Yeah, terrorists is what I meant to say. My my apologies. You think terrorists, but um, that is a, a false narrative, right? But that's what the media played every day for years doing that war when when we were in that war over there under the Bush administration. Let's bring it present day. Um, football coach just got hired. Uh, as a defense uh, assistant coach, Flores, Brian Flores, he was, he's suing the NFL. Y'all familiar with this story? No. I think so. 
Yep. So Brian Flores is an accomplished uh, black head coach in the NFL. He was interviewing for a job with uh, obviously competing against other coaches, white coaches, and New England Patriots coach, um, Belichick. Yeah. He accidentally messages Brian Flores when he met a message to the other coach uh who's also named first name is brian but it's a white guy um saying hey congrats on the role and this is days before he even interviewed for the position oh wow okay and so the context of history to this is that you have umpteen years of nfl seasons you have a hundred you say 130 hires only 15 to 17 of those hires were black coaches why you have a, a league where their players are 70, 70% black, right? And so this is this unspoken understanding of black coaches interviewing for NFL positions like they're just trying to check that box. So what Brian Flores did, he got litigation and is suing the NFL for these unfair practices, okay? Yeah. That's happening right now. This is not a thing of the past. And that's happening in every industry, you know? No, oh, absolutely. And so, you know, that's that's just another one of those examples. I've been following that story and sort of the cluster of stories around that and just the analysis of like when the when the league put this, like you have to bring a minority candidate up for interviewing. Rooney rule. Rooney rule. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is the difference between individual racism and systemic racism this became an exercise. Like you said, you have to check the box. This is just about, did we bring a minority candidate into interview? We're not actually interested in that person. Yeah. We just need to make sure that we have satisfied the league rules. You cannot undo systemic racism by just having a checkbox. Yeah. The other thing you hear is like, well, we can't find anyone. Oh, no, that's absolutely not true. There are many qualified black coaches people of color, everything. It's just, you don't want to, you're not looking where those people are and you're actually not interested in finding them. And, right? and that's the challenge of the work I do and you two are doing. Like you were saying, Shay Lushi, is it's, a, it's not about continuing the norm or, or, or checking the box or et cetera or whatever, but it's about changing hearts, right? So that is what I try to portray in my activism in my involvement right are we doing something to change hearts are we checking off a box and so if we can get to the point of changing hearts because i tell you this our kids like they ain't playing you know what i'm saying they're not going to tolerate it you know and so we're kind of in that 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 transition period of like we're doing what we can with what we have left you know so anytime you get in discussion what needs to be done it needs to start with are we changing hearts hearts yeah. And if, if someone's not willing to change, you need to get them out of here. You go next. Well, I was, I'm not a big cancel culture guy. This is one of my beliefs um, systems. This is one of my core like things I do. If your beliefs are centralized uh, around the oppression of me and my people, I can't rock with you. Years ago, I, I had a friend, we, we hung out, we kicked it and everything, white do, country do, but we had a great time. And then somehow during the, all the civil unrest, he was started telling how he was, um, had pride in the Confederate flag. And I tried to 
have a conversation like do you understand the history he said i get it man it's not about i don't i don't do i'm not racist i don't do racism the south was a community like you know that's my ancestor i'm like okay i, I don't know if i'm asking you to disown but i can't you know i need you to say something that is uh against what that stands for and he and he couldn't do it him and his and his wife couldn't do it and we were friends for you know years and i was just like i can't rock with you like I had to unfriend them and all that. Like, and they, and I, and I, I never was mean to them. Like, I, I don't want no confrontation. I said, as long as you, as long as you believe in that, I can't trust you around my, my peace. And I can't trust you around my family. That's just what it is. Because I'm at, I was at a point where I was sick of the death, sick of the murder, sick of the impression. And my time's too valuable to be, be trying to change your mind in that way. That's real, man. That is the weight that we have to carry. You know, the story that you just relayed about your friend being like, I'm not a racist. I don't carry out racist acts. What's, what's really fascinating, and I think what most people don't understand is that we swim in racism. Oh gosh. That's the air we breathe, that's the water we drink. Every one of us is racist to some degree, whether or not we're aware of it or not. And we participate in racist systems. Where I live, Oak Park, Illinois, is right next, it's like right on the border of western part of Chicago. I found out when housing was desegregated, Oak Park was one of the two communities in the entire Chicago area that prohibited people from putting signs on their front lawn saying that the house was for sale. As a result, property values have stayed high the neighborhoods are much more racially integrated than almost any other community around. Why is that? Because when housing was desegregated and people found out that a black family was moving in, in places where you could put a, put a thing on the lawn, 50% of the neighborhood moved out. Right. Property values went down. That's a self-fulfilling system. It just feeds back into itself. Right. In the two places in the entire Chicago area where that wasn't allowed, where you couldn't put a sign in your front yard, the property value stayed high and neighborhoods have stayed, have become very integrated. Yeah. Racially, socioeconomically, even when you try and undo a policy that's very racist, the world is racist. That's what we're talking about when we talk about systemic racism. But not every person who's racist out there is going to burn a cross in someone's front yard or put yeah. a swastika in. We're talking about this kind of stuff. Oh, I don't want to live on a, on the street with black people. I'm going to move. Yeah. Everybody moves. 50% of the neighborhood moves. Right. Property values go down. And then people who live in those communities, which have lower housing values, A, don't get to build wealth, like you were saying. They don't get to send their kids to good schools. You know, the, you know they don't, the schools don't have as much as a white community does. It perpetuates itself. So there's a quote. Ah, I'm gonna get the author of the quote, but I'll look it up. This essentially is something like, um, "To be a black man, I'm gonna say black man or woman, in America, and to be conscious or 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 woke, is to be in a rage all the time." You see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. What you just highlighted, Shay Lucius, is like. That's present day stress and oppression, right? And so like- James Baldwin. James Baldwin. He said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost almost all the time and in one's work. Yeah. 
And so you trying to lead a wife or a husband or your partner, you're trying to raise a family. And as soon as you walk out that door, you're walking into that, right? And now, you know, Coach, and now we got a conference call at 3, 8, 3 p.m. <laughs> you know what I mean? And during Black History Month, and we got to figure out how to navigate those waters without being offensive and getting fired, you know? There's, so There's been a couple of times on calls like that where I've had to put myself on mute just so I don't get myself fired. And the thing is like, in so many situations, the intentions are, are positive. The intentions are there. I got into it with a colleague of mine a couple of years ago when I said something about white privilege. And this is something I argue, I argue really hard. And my father-in-law, for example, older now, like, but an older middle-aged white guy in the middle of Michigan and has worked incredibly hard for what he has gotten in his life. No, he, he wasn't handed anything, right? However, yeah. I said something about white privilege and we got into it and I got into it with a colleague uh, a couple of years ago too. And it's so hard to explain that white privilege is not about you getting handed things, but about not holding people back because of the color of your skin. It's not about people actually saying, if you're black, you don't get to go anywhere but there are systemic ways that are holding those people back. Yeah, beautifully said, Kosha. But to add to that, depending on who you're talking to, there's something I had that, that friend that I referenced a moment ago over the Confederate flag, you know, seemingly hardworking guy, like had a history of some DUIs and things. But it's like, it's not my fault you did not capitalize on your white privilege. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. just yeah. because you come from the gutter and you feel like you're still there, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like we all have to unpack our personal trauma and move forward. Um, but you know, you know, so don't compare the two. It's not that's not my fault. You didn't capitalize on your privilege, you know. But at the end of the day, you can put on a suit. I can put on a suit. You got two DYs. I, I got a clean record and immaculate CV. But we go to buy a property in downtown Oklahoma City or downtown Chicago. Who do you think they're gonna listen to first? Like, understand, like, you know, understand it or don't, but I, like, I'm not finished, you know, I'm done. I could go in so many directions, but what I will say in response to that, because you're absolutely right, is that that is where the white aggrievement is coming from yeah. nowadays, right? This like, don't teach critical race theory. Okay. Critical race theory is not appropriate for three or third graders. No one's teaching critical race theory, but what do you, what do you really want? White people are saying, don't make me uncomfortable about my history. Yeah. Let's not teach any of this stuff. Right fragility. Right. Right fragility. The flips and the flip side of that is like, why do those people get those people get something when I didn't get it? I deserve X, Y, and Z. I deserve a nice house. I deserve this job. Why is that black person or that Mexican person or that, you know, whatever? Chinese person getting that thing, getting, and I put that in quotes because there's no getting in this country. You don't get something, but why are they getting it when I deserve it? And it's like your friend, like he's not, what is the worst of bootstraps there? People of color get told bootstrap it. Right. And white people expect things to be, not all white people. I feel like I have to put that there. Hashtag not all white people. <laughs> right. Right. But 
there are parts of this country all over the country there are people who you know there are white people who are like i deserve this and that person is taking it from me right yeah and the rest of the the people of color are like i worked my butt off for this and i'm still not getting what i deserve actually even even that belief was orchestrated you have the one percenters of the world today and two, three, four, five hundred years ago. That's why um, in the churches, I'm not a historian, y'all, but in the churches, they didn't initially have the, the Bibles in, in, in English. They had it in Latin. And so, you know, it was a control factor. All you know is what we're telling you, right? They, they changed the narrative to say these Blacks are coming out of say, slavery to take your jobs. These Mexicans, now Hispanics are coming over here to take your jobs. And so even though they're taking coins from them and us, they try to pit them against us so they can stay in power. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. That's what's infuriating to me is that you so passionate about this flag when it's not our fault that your ancestors grew up in poverty, that they didn't, you know what I mean? Like that was orchestrated to affect you in that way. Let's, let's even say that the Confederate flag represents the South and the community that your ancestors had. That community was built on the oppression of an entire people. Yeah. The fact that you still want to be associated with that community is problematic. Yeah. Right? Like, and like don't take my history away from me. We didn't have that fucking choice when my ancestors were dragged in chains it's talking about both sides of your ass to me yeah i i agree and um that's why you have to i told you the other day you have to protect your peace you know what i mean because otherwise you'd be in you'll be in a rage all the goddamn time (laughs) baldwin absolutely because we're talking about you know wealth and and one percenters and and we know from the beginning of this podcast that you work in corporate america Mm-hmm. so on one hand you're like f the system and then you like put you go to work and you're like here i am i'm part of the system working really hard for the system to get my bonus check no so um what is that like for me so i made a decision to always try to say yes you got some challenge in, fr- in front of me you need somebody or you know needs to be tackled let me let me figure it out let us figure it out but i'm on board right to, to be silenced to be complicit i'm a believer in that and so while I was exhausting at times, I choose to sit, have try to have a seat at the table and 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 speak my and speak my experiences. But I'll be honest with you, um, I was an ambassador for a African American ERG at one point, and I was um, asked to be a part of uh, a panel. The panel was me, another sister that was sales, and a manager uh, who was actually a, a, a non POC. But the whole purpose of it, I think, was good to have a conversation. You know, seventy people in the region, maybe five people were people of color. The premise of my talk was to give my experience, but also to share this. I, I, I got this from another friend who went to a uh, Black Lives Matter meeting. When you go to a Black Lives Matter meeting, um, they tell you that if you do not want to go to jail or if you got to go to work in the morning, you got to go take care of your kids tomorrow morning, get in the middle, <laughs> you know, uh, get in the middle. They tell you that memorize or write down or take down this phone number. If you get arrested, we have resources and fundraise resources to support you. And then now for you, uh, white people are here. We love you, appreciate you. 
we appreciate your strength. But what we need you to do is come to the front of the line and link arms because police officers are less likely to use, to escalate or use force if they see someone in front of them that looks like their mother, their wife, you know, their wife, their brother, their father. And so that was my message of saying, I'm not here to, to educate you or give you resources, but just be an ally. Realize your, your, the opportunity and realize what it feels like to be one of a few and speaking to you and be an ally, you know, speak up, stand up when you can. So anyway, the, you know, that went pretty good. My follow-up with the director who asked me to be on the panel like what's next? And it was like, well, put this together. We see what happens. Like, you know, it was, it was his, I felt it was his check off the box. Although I don't, I see him trying to be uh, an ally or he was an ally in that way. The work doesn't stop, right? There's always work to be done and you have to constantly be for that work. And I, that was a lesson for me to like, not saying I wouldn't have done it again, but it's my responsibility if I want to do more, you know? And you have to, and you have to build the right mentors, um, um, partnerships, and that kind of thing. But um, I hope I answered your question to an extent on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I just think it's it's hard to be both inside and outside the system. And so I'm, you know, really like uh, you go home and you're one. You can approach it one way, and I, this is true of almost every person of color in almost every setting it's almost like you have to put on an outfit, your body language and how you participate and all of that stuff. Yeah, I, I think code switching, if I understand it, is more from a being like, you know, Hispanic American and, and talking in Spanish or being black and speaking slang and then coming into, you know what I mean? That's a form of it, but. Right around uh, the George Floyd murder and the the black lives matters protests and things like that we had some national conversations but someone in the organization that was higher up it's a black man and he said if i'm going to my kids basketball game i put on my glasses and a suit like whenever i am in the car i have my jacket because if i pulled over i need to speak the speak and i need to look the look even if I'm going to my kids' yeah. basketball game. Yeah. Now switch to, I know somebody who is white who had like severe, a stomach bug, okay? Was going into the Walgreens in like sweats and a t-shirt and is puking outside the Walgreens. Um, we have talked about puke a lot on this episode, um, but is like throwing up outside in the bushes. Literally two cops walk right past him. He's a white guy, walked right past him. To me, that higher up in our company was doing the code switching. That like, as soon as he gets at the basketball game, Mm. he can talk how he wants, he can yell, he can talk slang with his friends. But in that car, he is dressed like a corporate employee. Yeah. You know, I don't know, she'll say I cut you off. I didn't mean to. Oh, I can't hear you. I don't remember what I was saying. I had to sneeze. So I muted myself and then I I forgot to unmute. (laughs) Bless you. I don't remember what I was saying, but we, I mean, we were talking about sort of two things, right? There's the emotional labor of having to keep your shit together when you walk out the door and you participate in white corporate culture. I appreciate the question because that's something I think about a lot. My personal goal this year is health and wellness. Like I'm trying to get back in the gym. I'm trying to get my financial life together and that kind of thing. 
the reason we move, like I told you the story about my moving from town, city to city, state to state, is because of, of opportunities, but also changes within this industry, right? And so something that me and my group of friends, we now meet once a week to talk about um, accountability you know, as far as professionally, but also investments, right? I, I would love to be a part and retire from the current current company I'm at, but I can't rely on that, right? Because that one day I want to look up and say, what well, you know what, this is too heavy for me. Can I walk away comfortably? And so uh, me and the wife are having constant conversations about, you know, real estate opportunities, business opportunities. Can we find a way to create passive incomes and do things that if we can choose to walk away and live a life of leisure, can you find a way to live a life of leisure outside of your corporate uh, demand, right? And so that is, that's a challenge that I have to myself because while I love what I do, I can absolutely do this rest of my life. I need to build wealth and legacy for my family, right? Outside of their for, uh, traditional 401ks and the Roths and the pensions. So um, that's something I challenge myself. I'm challenging myself to this year. Awesome. Yeah. I was actually shocked when Kosha told me that your company offers a pension. And I was like, <laughs> nobody offers a pension anymore. Yeah. You know, even government employees don't get a, yeah. as great of a pension as they used to. Which I, I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, do I stay even if it's not, you know, if, even if like I could get a better salary elsewhere or whatever, but do I stay because I'm close enough to 55 where it makes sense to have that conversation about staying my partner who, or my ex-partner is 30. He's like, oh, go to another company if you have to. Like, because he's got 25 years. I only have, you know, 13 yeah. years left to really think about it. 13, yeah. That is neither here nor there, but it's about building wealth, right? And like making sure you're comfortable. We do at our company have some diversity in the upper echelons. It's still very, very, yeah. you know, white male centric, but you know, my regional director is a spitfire woman, but what you notice, I think, and I don't, I'm just kind of thinking about this now, but the women are incredibly assertive. Like they, they have to be, they're, they're tough. They're some of the toughest ones to work for. And then a lot of the, the male POCs are, they're from the military. Like they also have this like yeah. tough mentality. Yeah. And I think they have to do that. Like I have to be harder than everybody else. I, I give you this um, example. One of my, uh, one of my mentors from a previous company, I was uh, starting at a previous company, first national meeting. And uh, he's a, also a, a, a brother. He was like, yeah, man, um, at this meeting, stand up and say something. And I was, truthfully, I was kind of still absorbing, you know? He says, he says, no, you have to. You have to stand up, let them know you're here, and let them know you know how to articulate your message. Because they think, you know, they don't think that of us. And it goes back to the, to the Brian Flores lawsuit. The understanding that we have a small brain, right? right? We got mm -hmm. small skull, small brain, and that kind of thing. So my message is, to coach this the other day, you know, we were trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out how to implement our share out education on black history. And I was like, yeah, but we need to be a little bit more intentional in what we're doing just because, you know, you don't want to overwhelm people. That's your concern as a manager, as a leader. But if when there's another killing, 
later this year was unfortunately based on statistics it's going to happen now everybody wants to call me and say i'm sorry for your experience kevin what can i do to help let's get ahead of that you know well we actually had that discussion one day and i think he was like i understand kevin you're right yeah (laughs) right i know i'm right thank you very much i've been through it a few times You know, one of the more interesting, I don't want to call it a trend because I deeply believe that this is important, but it feels like a trend right now, um, particularly in the nonprofit sector, in the community impact sector, is there is a real desire to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, yeah, huge. And Which is important. I'm not saying that's not important at all. You know, my concern sometimes is that it, with such a deep, intense focus in the now that it's one of those things that's like, well, we already did that without actually, you know, addressing or, or thinking through the reality that one, that work never ends. And two, yeah. a hit it hard and move on approach is actually not going to get to where people need to be. Right. Because just going back to the headspace of we are all swimming in racism. So you can deal with the most pernicious forms of or permit pernicious systems or policies or patterns of thinking. That sort of one and done approach, even one year and done approach is not going to get to this, the real deep stuff. This, that is the stuff that needs to be undone. Not this like, oh, we have this inequitable policy around uh, reimbursements. All right, that's, a, that's sort of an obvious, oh, we fix this. But it's so easy for people to pat themselves on the back saying, oh, we did this one thing or we did this series of things and it's so much better now and now we're, aren't we so great? Uh, one of the things I appreciate about our company's culture is that um, this is new to me, right? In my near 10 years in, 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 in this space, um, it is in their like um, year in review or their review, right? That mm-hmm. uh, what are they doing as far as diversity and hiring? You know, that's in there in the database, you know what I mean? And so it, no matter how they feel individually, as an individual, as a person, their own character, they have to have that conversation. They have to address it, you know what I mean? And I, I do appreciate that. Anna, we had a we had a guest on who is a queer POC and um, she was saying that really it comes down to not just addressing the DEI, but investing in those communities. And I think that that really is, and I said that when we were like, what do you want to, why are you on the DEI council or whatever? Like, what do you, what do you want to accomplish? And I'm like, it's about investing in those communities, not just acknowledging again, not just putting it on your social media, but what's that next step. Right. And I think that's where, especially after the George Floyd murders last, was that two years ago? Almost two years ago. A thousand years ago, yesterday. A thousand years, right. What is time? Yeah, it was, you know, 2020 that that happened, right? And it's like, we can't stop by just talking about race. We have to then move beyond just the chit chat and invest in the communities. So let me, let me try to articulate this and y'all hold me accountable and help me uh, speak my thoughts to this. So one of, that is a hot button for me, right? You want to talk about it, but what are the action items, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Another hot, but for me is being too hyper focused or too siloed in diversity. The DNI is such an intersection of communities. 
uh, what does it mean to be a black man, uh, a brown female, a gay black man, a gay black brown female, you know what I mean? And so one of the things I've seen in previous companies, a CEO was so quick to put on a pride pin, but I've never seen a person in a Black Lives Matter pin, right? And so they are picking and choosing rather than seeing all related. A step forward for any minority group, minority group, whether gay, black, white, women, or whatever, is a step forward for everyone, right? Uh, injustice against you is, a, is an injustice, injustice against all of us. And so that is what I, I believe I want to portray as I climb this ladder, I live my life. But I want, you know, that's what our leadership of these corporate corporations need to understand that it's all connected. You don't pick and choose. You do the, you do the work because you leading a company of diverse people, whether it's seen or unseen. The woman that we interviewed said, you know, it's so it can be challenging sometimes to go to meetings because I don't know what one people are expecting me to show up as. I'm queer. I'm also black. I'm also a woman. What one contingent are they looking for me to represent? which is one problematic just from the fact that people don't live siloed lives, right? We live, we live our lives and we are who we are and our, our identities and personalities are many. Mm. The second thing is she's like, but I refuse to do that. And that causes problems when I'm in those spaces because I refuse to leave parts of my identity at the door. So yeah. I'm not just a black person. Yeah. I'm not a woman. I'm not a queer person. I'm a black queer woman yeah. who comes from the South side of Chicago. Yeah. who is very different than another black queer woman who comes from the south side of Chicago. It gets very frustrating for me when I hear people be like, oh, but we have such a diverse, we have such a diverse team. But if, if they're not allowed to be there, bring their POC experience or their brown queer women experience to the table and they have to act within the white structure, then you don't actually also have diversity. Yeah. yeah. It looks like you do. You put, a, you put a picture on your social media with all of these, you know, people of color, but they're not allowed to bring themselves. Yeah. That's the, the goal of having a trans, emotionally transparent workplace. Um, I, I share something with y'all since we're here. And I think this is something that if y'all haven't covered in your podcast, I think you need to. Um, like, so me and my wife have two children. A was three years old and Isaac's seven next week on the 25th. You know, our son is autistic. He's level two autistic, nonverbal. Uh, and I went to a, uh, a panel and uh, one of the speakers is a former manager was talking about, you know, her, her daughter has epilepsy. She was talking about having to lead a group of people or just be a leader while getting a call that her daughter's having a, is in the hospital suffering from a seizure and she wants to break down but she feels she can't so that is a toxic environment because what you want to happen if I come on that elevator with you and you're going with that I want to see it acknowledge and say how can I help you need me covered for you you need a ride what do we need to do you know mm -hmm. that meeting can wait you know and I, I think that's a challenge within me and Coach's current work environment. It's uh, everything's such a firestorm um, that you don't have a, an opportunity to breathe and take in. It really depends on who you work with or for. It's so complicated because me as a man and 
my own uh, masculinity and all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, it's tough days, you know, it's the system, especially here in Oklahoma is not built for uh, non-neurotypical children. It's built for neurotypical children. So now you're trying to f uh, force a square cube into a, a, a sphere, you know? So it's, um, you know, that is so like, coach, that's just like, that is the goal. That's what you want to happen. The ability to be vulnerable in that mm -hmm. way and have a sense of radical empathy. Thank you for sharing. I had a situation several years ago where one of my best friend's brothers died in a freak accident. It, it, no one saw it coming. It was at work. And I found out probably a minute before I was going into ride with my manager. It's not my current manager. He looked at me and he goes, uh, how are you doing? You know? And, and I told him what happened and he's like, Oh, that's tough. It wasn't my brother. Wasn't, I wasn't, I, there's nothing I could do, sure. but my first thought would have been, do you need to take a day? Yeah. Right. Do you, let's cancel the ride day. Do you need to go home, take the day off, whatever. Uh, and then at the end of the day, he sat down with me and he yeah. was like, you were off today. And he went through every one of my sales calls and told me how I didn't ask the right questions. And I just see, oh. I didn't have my usual like joie de vivre. I'm like, yeah, I know I was off. I was like, but I had some really bad news this morning. And he goes, well, uh, you know, that's where you have to kind of be an actor to be a salesperson sometimes. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. From that moment, I was like, I was like, okay, this is what I'm dealing with now. Any like, oh, we're a family. I'm not here to be your boss. I'm here to be your coach and all that stuff. That stuff is, you don't believe everyone who says that shit, you know? I, I'm just going to say something that helps. So I was, uh, I used to be the president of a ministry here in Oklahoma City back in the day in my mid twenties or whatnot. And I was not equipped to, no, I we had a great ministry. I was equipped to do the, <laughs> do the role, but <laughs> one of my, uh, my VP, we were like, I was building a family environment. And one day he opened up to me about in his youth having suicidal thoughts, but I wasn't equipped to respond. I wasn't equipped to respond. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that moved on. And he took it a certain way. I didn't notice in the moment, but as we move later on and things, you know, had some projects and initiatives and things got challenging. He said, I've told you some really close things, you know, that was something that's a, that's a huge regret of mine that I didn't sit in that grief or sit in that moment and share that moment and be a true support in that moment. And that is like when, so, you know, when Kosha texts me and says, I'm thinking about doing this or I need this. Like, I'm like, like, it's not, I'm, I'm, that's, that comes to my mind. Like, what do you need? Let's figure it out. Like, that's just, that's who I want to be. And so, and that, and I, and I'll be, be honest with you, that's not my natural character. I have to push myself in that way. Um, but I, I never want that to happen again. And so when you say, when I say I'm not equipped, that manager wasn't equipped, or maybe that man, manager, manager was an asshole who probably both. But um, at the end of the day, like there needs to be corporate training around that. Right. Uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> like, what do you do when? your direct report does or says this, right. you know? Right. And that's that's what needs to be rolled out, like constantly, consistently, and then rebuilt, restructured, and rolled out again. Yeah, absolutely. I hope, I really, fingers, all fingers crossed, is that the pandemic has shown us that people's personal lives and their work lives are not separate. 
Yeah. Right. When when your kid comes running in, or when you know your your pet sticks her face in the Zoom screen, it's clear that your personal life and your home, you know, your work life are they overlap so much. Yeah. And it's not you can't just leave your personal self at the yourself at the door and bring the work self to work. Yeah. Right. Um. I also hope that this has allowed us to create some safety around some of those conversations, because. I think on both ends, people are afraid. What if I say the wrong thing? What if it's too much? We're in a really fascinating time for culture shift, I think. And I'll, and I'll highlight that. And I appreciate that's a great insight there. Uh, say, Lucy, I, I, so one thing I asked my group of friends is about eight of us um, in, a, uh, in a group chat. I asked for my birthday to tell me why we're still friends. You know, because I agree with you, we're in a time that we have went to a couple of years of this unstable, unknown, what would the future look like? Could we, we lost someone, we could have lost someone. And so we need some self-love sometimes and, and reminded of our gifts, but um, they did it, you know, we just have a good, you know, just a good group of friends in that way. And um, this, this to be reminded of, you know, my ability to be honest and forthcoming that no matter the situation, I'm going to tell you what I feel right on the spot. And, uh, then I, I, I'm come off as a caring individual, you know what I mean? These things that I knew, but I needed to be reminded, reminded of, uh, so I can continue to live that and be that to them based on our current relationship. So I just think that's, that is so true, yo, so true. Well, and I can imagine that also is just having this conversation with you that you try to bring that person to everything you do, not just with your friends, but at work yeah. and with your colleagues and with other professional um, and, and personal activities that you do, like that's who you are. And you're right. It does help. It's really important to like be grounded in that again, like, no, no, this is who I am. Even when things get hard, even when I'm tired you know, this is who I am and to continue to be able to bring that to everything that you do, you know, I've never, so coach is right. I have never worked in the corporate sector. I, that's not, well, I worked retail one summer, but I've never actually worked in the corporate sector. So I don't know. KB toy stores. Yeah. I worked at KB <laughs> toy stores one summer. That's I, the only, I, I, I was going to put some, like some like, weird name out there, like Tarjay or something, but no, I didn't want no, you not to even that cool. Un unnecessary even better. If they're not, not sponsoring you, we shouldn't name yeah, it. I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> store, that's about the thing, no, right? KB Toy Story, I don't even, even exist. We don't want their sponsorship. No. Went under it, it's, it's completely gone. <laughs> it doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. The emotional and sort of psychosocial headspace in, in nonprofits is very, very different. It's almost overly emotional at times because the whole, the whole appeal is, well, you're here because you care about the mission of the yeah. work. Yeah. And that can be used to, to, you know, sort of put a gloss over the fact that this industry off the sector often exploits its workers. Wages are low, you know, people overwork all the time. And there's sort of emotional gaslighting here around like, well, if you ask for money, you just don't care. Yeah. And I've always appreciated that about the corporate sector. And my husband's in corporate finance. Kosha's, you know, worked in pharmaceutical sales for a long time. 
at least there's no pretending about why people are there. Yeah. Like, yes, I care about the product I'm selling, or yes, I care about getting the balance sheet right or whatever, but I could work here. I could work at another company. I could work at a third company. There's no, like, I deeply care about the mission yeah. of this company. And this is what I'm going to do for my whole life. Right. And so I, I really appreciate that people are like, I got to get my bonus, right? <laughs> I got to make my numbers. What I will say, what I will say is that's interesting. And I don't have the numbers. I cannot tell you if this is statistically significant or not. But what I have noted, and I've worked at a couple of, you know, in a couple of divisions and in a few companies that Kevin and I work in mental health. And in our division specifically, in our, in our sector of mental health specifically, there is a very high homeless population. Yeah. But what I will say is the people who work in our division, in our sector, there is a higher POC ratio that I have at least noticed than in, let's say diabetes or, you know, in GI or something like that. There are more people who have a passion behind something other than just their paycheck that like with with either mental health or racism misogyny something that has caused a higher ratio of poc in neuroscience and in mental health than others like i said i do not know that for a fact but in my experience that's what i've seen but if nothing else it's experiential for your company exactly. yes yes yeah there's real parallels between what you say or what you do in the nonprofit realm and my, me and Coach's for-profit division. <laughs> um, there is definitely that feeling of like, get out here and get the business. But when you get back and do shared share successes, it is centered around a, a patient in psychosis, right? A patient who was struggling to piece together their mental and there's a, an expected a certain level of compassion to that as a sales professional. So that is such a oxymoron to, to say the least. But um, I would say for myself to Kosha's um, point, I am such, I am so attracted to this division. I, I, I do pray and hope that I could sit, be in it long-term and make it, make it work for me. Because uh, when you talk about the historic it's current and historic uh, around uh, antipsychotics and, and, and the treatment of mental health. Um, you're talking about um, those antipsychotics meds being tested on inmates at, in the prison system, including the company we work for. We're talking about that 75% of that prison system are black and brown bodies, okay? We're talking about homeless. We're talking about people who fall into uh, homelessness because of um, mental uh, illness or because they they lost everything because they had little to begin with and lost confidence and fell into depression and said, you know what, I'm just going to live on the street. Then And then came the mental illness, you know? And so I am so in tune uh, and uh, intrigued by this division in that way. And the stigma yeah. against psychosis and schizophrenia, schizoaffective, bipolar in these minority communities also. In these black yeah, communities. yeah. Those stigmas have not gone away. I mean, the, the fact that my son is autistic and we, one of the challenges we have is to um, cur- curate space for him at his school 
um, a space where he, you know, when he's stimming, right? He has to get rid of that energy, he's stimming. There's no space, there wasn't a space for him. There wasn't a room for him to go and release that so he can join his classmates, you know? And they, they try to put, um, basically, they put a closet together and put a, a little squeeze ball in there and, you know, a chair in there. I'm like, nah, this ain't gonna do it. This ain't gonna do it. Let, you know, what do we need to buy? What do we need to do? And so um, it, it's just not, it, society's not built for that. It's not, uh, this, the societal pressure is not, it's not geared toward taking care of those who, who can't speak for themselves. Once again, I, I'll just go back to, which is such a great thing about your platform uh, in this I Am Speaking podcast. But, but anyway. That's, I mean, we were really motivated by the idea of, well, I mean, two things, right? One is that there are so many interesting, every person has an interesting yeah. story, every, regardless, doesn't matter if you're the most straight laced, you know, by the book, quote unquote, by, I don't even know what that means, yeah. but like the most straight laced storybook life that you can imagine, or everything went wrong for you from the minute you came out. But, but people have really, really interesting stories. The other piece of it, like you were saying, is not so much to give voice to the voiceless, but to give the microphone to people who don't get heard, um, because nobody could say it better than, you know, the person who's living their life, who's lived that experience. And so I don't, you know, I wouldn't want someone to talk for me and I don't want to talk for anyone else. I just want to create a, we want to create a space where people can tell their own stories and hopefully through the telling of stories, people are like, oh, I recognize that. Oh, I get that. I understand this more now than I ever did because people have a lot of similarities more than they do differences. And the similarities are what allow you to bridge, you know, get to those differences, which is like, oh, yeah, okay, I can see this stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Or, oh, wow, I had no idea or anything like that. And now, and, and so true. And what I try to, uh, through affirmation and, and trying to give my children affirmations and even my wife affirmations, and, and we all need it, but we are more than what you were taught about us, right? My existence didn't, didn't start uh, during the uh, slave trade. You know what I mean? We were kings and queens before this. For, for those believers that listen, like uh, God was made in my image. We, that is within us. I am a God. And as far as, you know, um, this, you know, you, we have greatness within us. We all do. We just have to tap into it. And sometimes it has to be heard, fed and, and watered, you know, so um, um, we, we have to tap into that for each of us in our own way. If someone's in your position or you yourself 20, you know, 15 years ago, or anyone who's really interested in, in addressing these systemic issues, either in their own workplace or in their communities, what advice would you give them? It doesn't, this is not expert advice, right? This is not like the way to do it, but just from your perspective, what do you think? Like, I would do this, or I would suggest you do that. Yeah, uh, if you know, yeah. Um, thank you for the question. I'm keeping in a realm of asking myself or, or, or telling myself this wisdom. Uh, I would absolutely tell myself to believe in yourself. Uh, anytime you feel doubt, uh, starting to bubble, push it down and acknowledge your greatness. You know, um, you know, I think back to my younger self as far as 
the jobs I would apply for because of the type of degree or the GPA was, I probably could exceed at that. The um, buying my first home, you know, could have did it sooner if I thought I could financially afford it. You know, don't put restrictions on yourself. You have a voice, you have a mind. It's your job, your, it's a muscle. It's your job to grow it, build it and strengthen it. And as you do it, go ahead and jump out there. And uh, I just wish I would have like felt that way, understood that. And then like in my early twenties, I just think not that I'm not quote unquote successful now or feel good about where I am now. I just think I would have touched more people by now, you know? Um, so uh, yeah, just believe in yourself, push that self-doubt down, make, mista- make mistakes, uh, learn and grow and uh, just push forward. You know, that that's what, without a doubt, I just would have just, just, you know, drilled into my head in my, in my, in my a young self. The book is called How to Put Yourself First. And every person's advice was another chapter in that book. This is, these are ways to put yourself first, just like what you just said. So we would be speechless and I would say, well, that's good advice for us all. Every single time for like eight people, like eight people in a row. Until Shayla, she was like, oh my God, you need to say that. <laughs> and so I still say it, but sometimes I cut myself out. The other thing, it, this is the beauty of being able to edit your, your own voice out. You know, the other thing is, um, we, Shayla, she said earlier, you know, we understand that you're not, you're not a, um, expert in the world. You don't speak for every black person. You don't speak for every black man. You don't speak for everyone named Kevin. Like it just, we're just asking for your experience. We had to give that lead in, right? The disclaimer, because everyone would say, well, I'm not an expert. Right. And you're like, yeah, okay. Because that's they fine. did, yeah, they didn't want to feel like they're overstepping. So finally, I'm like, we know you're not an expert. If you say it, I will edit it out because everyone knows you're not an expert. So, well, you know, but can I say something to that point? That is what I'm talking about, though. That's self-doubt, because I am an expert in who I am. You know what I mean? And so it's like, like I've, I intentionally, I train myself, like, not to diminish my aura. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, I'm a big believer in, like, you, what you put into the universe comes back to you. And so if I put in the universe, I'm not something, I will never be that. <laughs> and so if I put in the universe, I want to be a CEO or a real estate developer. Like I'm going to say it. I say it every day. Like I say things I want. I want to be a, I want to be an excellent husband, excellent father. You know what I mean? Because that's really what gives you that energy when you're exhausted to go, you know what? All right, let's get down here and play this game or whatever. Let's go to the park. You know what I mean? Because that's what it takes. You have to do the work. So I think that's, I think that's so true. Hey, hey, no, I think that's true. That's good advice for all of us. Yes. Now we can keep it in since you said that. I was going to say, I mean, that is very true in that people often forget that you create your own reality. Yeah. And that's not this like woo-woo said, like manifesting manifesting something, right? That is truly, you get what you focus on. Yeah. And if you keep your eye on the big prize, you're going to get there. So true we had someone on who did, who did a lot of mountain biking. And one of the things he said is do not look at the rock. You're really tempted to yeah. look at the rock, 
But don't look at the rock because if you look at the rock, you're going to hit the rock. rock. You Mm -hmm. have to look at the trail. Mm -hmm. And you keep going, don't hit the rock, don't hit the rock. And you hit the rock. So you have to not look at that stuff, not look at the obstacles, not look at the stuff that can take you down and look at your path. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And your path might be really far. Yeah. Even if it doesn't look like it's a straight path and it looks like there are a lot of rocks, Mm -hmm. you still look at the path. Yeah. Exactly. So. So that is good advice for us all. And I do appreciate that. Okay. So our last question is, uh, and you have two kids, so this is going to be fun. It is about Familect. So uh, can you give us some examples of your Familect? God, I can go here all day because we just got such an interesting family. So the thing that comes to mind first is trying to learn how to communicate with your son when he doesn't doesn't talk, right? And so uh, we are trying to incorporate more more uh, sign language uh, in our in our in our household so um, give the, each of the kids you give them something to eat and they eat it all they want more right right I want more and to, for for those listening you put your all your fingers together and then tap them together right I forgot now on your two hands yeah yeah <laughs> and so that is you you know it's just I think that's cool like I just I just love the fact that you go from the fear and frightening moment of not being able to communicate with your child to saying something as simple as that, at least I know, right? I know you want more. So that's, that's something that's, that's, that, was, that was impactful. Another another example would be, you know, trying to convince your, your child, you're trying to convince our children to do a task or complete a task. And then eventually they just go all done, right? Palms up, then down all done uh i'm all done i don't want to do this no more <laughs> like i'm over it uh and so so that doesn't mean i'm all done with my meal right that means right, yeah. you can step off right now <laughs> i'm not doing this anymore it's over right it's over. And, and so you know just those little sign language um, um ways of communication are, are a big part of our family um i would say uh recently my daughter um you know she's three now and going on um 35 i was gonna say um you know but i was you know she's a daddy's girl think you know she loves the heck i have a daddy you know and i you know and but you know i would take her get her potty trained i was realizing that she was getting too comfortable me being in there and like just that kind of thing and so i i it's a thing that uh she's mastered now is she gets in the, in the in the bath or in the bathroom and i would just always say okay i'm gonna give you your privacy i'm gonna give you your privacy and because at first you know she would she say where are you going daddy hey i'm gonna give you your privacy let me know if you, if you need help and so now she's mastered to the point where she goes to the bathroom and i'm like just just just, just follow her make sure you're okay she said dad no i need privacy i need privacy <laughs> I said, you got it, baby. You got it. I think another thing that me and the wife have is, uh, you know, um, instead of high five, we've we've always since we met, you miss the high five, you come back down and you get the backhand kind of thing. Um, we, we just have such a unique um, uh, sense of communication. And how do you pronounce it? How do you say Femilec? Familec. So it's F-A-M-I-L-E-C-T. F-A-M-I-L-E-C-T. Familec. That's nice. It's in linguistics and it's in psychology and it's a fascinating history, right? Psychology. And it really comes from like shared stories. 
the idea that you could say one word or do one thing like this, or, you know, you just say the word privacy and suddenly like people are now cracking up, you and your wife are cracking up. You have years now of history that, that can be, can, can be summed up in one word or one phrase. You have been an absolute joy. And, you know, you said that you're working on just saying yes and being, being there and being present. And, you know, we don't know, we haven't known each other that well for that long. And I texted Kevin and I was like, Hey, and he's like, Hey, my friend, what do you need? And I was like, wow, uh, we were like in a conference call. And I said, um, well, I have this podcast and, you know, would love to have you on. And he's like, yeah, I I'm there. I'll speak my truth. I want to do it. And I was like, wow, I could be I could be a horrible, it could be a bad podcast. It's not, but you said yes without even listening to it yet. I, awesome. you, are, you are living that truth for sure. So it has been illuminating talking to you. And I know we could just, keep, I mean, there's, I still have so many questions that I could ask, but we'll have to have you back on for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But only until February 28th, because Black History <laughs> Month is over after that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we don't, and then we pick racism. <laughs> listen, uh, listen, I, I, I appreciate you, ladies. I appreciate the the opportunity because it, it's it's therapeutic for me to 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 use this for the first time to talk to some of my thoughts and, and understanding. So, listen, appreciate for what you do. Now, you ladies are doing the right way, and I appreciate you. And uh, I would love to be back. And so, thank you. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Be great, ladies. Take care. <laughs>